welcome to the Methods Cafe, a podcast series focused on social legal research, which is brought to you by colleagues at Swansea University plus guests. My name is Sarah Kochaya and I'm a lecturer in cyber threats at Swansea University's Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law. And I'm Yvonne McDermott-Reese. I'm a professor also at the Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law at Swansea University. And this podcast is mainly for our master's students taking our module in research methods, but we welcome listeners from around the world. So welcome to the second episode of the Methods Cafe podcast. Today, we're joined by Professor Stuart MacDonald. Uh, Stuart's research interests lie in criminal law and counterterrorism, particularly in cyberterrorism and terrorists' use of the internet. Uh, many of you will know him. He is the director of the university's cross-disciplinary cyber threats research center, of which I'm also a member. And Stuart is also the lead organizer of the biennial TASM conference, the Terrorism and Social Media Conference, and coordinates the university's contribution to the Global Network on Extremism and Technology, GNET. Uh, his most recent work is on terrorists' use of the internet and has examined violent jihadist narratives, their dissemination via social media, and legal and policy responses. Uh, but also prior to this, his work has focused on cyberterrorism, examining definitional issues, threat assessment, and questions of response. So welcome, Stuart. Hi, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you join us. Today, we were hoping to just explore a little bit these notions of doctrinal versus more empirical studies in law. So I guess to start off the discussion, we were hoping if you could tell us a little bit about what you see the key differences between perhaps more traditional doctrinal studies and empirical studies in law? Yeah, sure. So maybe if I start with doctrinal studies in law, I think for me, doctrinal studies have three key features. So first of all, doctrinal studies will use legal sources, say things like cases, judgments of the courts, statutes, so traditional sources of legal authority. And then second, doctrinal studies will use legal reasoning. So my argument would be that law is a discrete discipline. It has a distinctive style of reasoning that I would call legal reasoning. And doctrinal legal scholarship would employ this form of legal reasoning. And then thirdly, I think doctrinal studies focus on what the law is. That's why they're sometimes referred to as black letter studies of the law. So they, they focus on what the law is. And then when it comes to analysis, they attempt to analyze the law from the perspective of legal doctrine. So that for me would be the key features of doctrinal legal scholarship. And then you can contrast that with empirical studies in law. Empirical studies, I think, use different methods and different analytical approaches, which are drawn from other disciplines. So you have a a wider variety of methods and approaches to analysis. And because of that, empirical studies can address wider questions. So they might ask, for example, about people's experiences of the legal process, or they might examine the impact of particular laws on people in general or on particular groups of people. So empirical studies are sometimes referred to as the law in action. And uh, I think 
that for me would be probably the major distinctions between the two. And Stuart, could I ask you, so you and I have both taught criminal law at undergraduate level, um, and it seems to me like a lot of the great scholarship in this field, criminal law, is very classically doctrinal. Do you think that's a fair assessment? And if so, what do you think the reasons for this are? Yeah, I think it is true to, to a large extent, and certainly lots of the commentators that come to mind when you think of criminal law uh, commentators would be ones that engage in doctrinal scholarship. Uh, I think there's a few reasons that might help explain this. The, the first is probably what we are trying to do in undergraduate education. We're preparing students for a career in law. We're helping them prepare to, to practice law. So the focus really is on legal skills, things like reading cases, reading judgments, helping the students to develop their skills of legal reasoning, this distinctive form of reasoning that I talked about. And so this really is reflected in the, the syllabuses that we, we have for the, the core modules. So criminal law, as you, as you mentioned, the focus in our criminal law syllabus is in understanding what the criminal law is and in trying to analyse the criminal law from the point of view of legal doctrine. So what we're trying to do with the students really is set up towards doctrinal scholarship. And that then is reflected in the key textbooks. So if you think of textbooks like Smith and Hogan, Semester and Sullivan, Ashworth, the leading textbooks are all ones that have a, a doctrinal approach to scholarship. And I think this, to a certain extent, does make sense because having that firm doctrinal foundation is, in some respects, a precursor to being able to engage in empirical studies. So I think it makes sense that undergraduate education prioritises this kind of doctrinal scholarship because empirical studies really, uh, if you like, are a kind of an advanced form of scholarship that doctrinal scholarship can, can lead on to. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned a couple of the key textbooks there, Stuart, but you didn't mention the classic uh, Stuart MacDonald's Text Cases and Materials on Criminal Law, which is, I just think, a fab um, companion to the subject. Um, what about yourself? I mean, do you see yourself as someone who, who used to do more doctrinal scholarship and now you do more empirical work? Or does the approach you take really differ depending on the research question? Sometimes you do a bit of doctrinal stuff, sometimes you do some empirical stuff. Yeah, I'm interested in your scholarly journey, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a good question. And um, I think it's certainly true to say that your approach will differ depending on the research questions that you want to answer. So there is certainly some truth in that. And also, I do enjoy both types of work. I enjoy the doctrinal work and I enjoy the empirical work. But probably, ultimately, I think my identity is quite a confused one. I think it's it's confused because I try and work across traditional boundaries. So I, I like interdisciplinary work. I like engaging with other disciplines whilst still trying to speak to the law. So I like interdisciplinary work. I also think it's really important that we engage with non-academics. So I try to involve 
non-academic stakeholders in the research process. I think this is really valuable in helping ensure that you ask the correct research questions, the questions that will actually have some bite uh, on policy and on practice. And then when it comes to doctrinal and empirical work, I think there again, I probably would like to try and work across that boundary. So I'd like to do empirical work, but also derive doctrinal conclusions from that. And I wouldn't, I think the best work probably is work that does straddle that doctrinal empirical boundary. So a recent piece that um, I co-wrote with a, a colleague, Professor Nuria Lorenzo-Dos, was looking at the offence in Section 1 of the Terrorism Act 2006. It's the offence of encouraging terrorism. And that, that piece, it was doctrinal in the sense that it was analysing legislation. It was looking very closely at this statutory offence. It was talking about how the statute should be interpreted and constructed. So it was doctrinal in that sense, but it was also empirical in that we were our starting point was the text of actual terrorist publications. We were looking very closely at um, these terrorist publications, and then we were analysing them from a linguistic point of view. And that was where uh, my co-author really had a very valuable contribution. And as we better understood the linguistic devices that were being used in these texts, we were able to derive what I think were doctrinal insights as to how that word encouragement should be interpreted and understood in legislation. So I think there's a lot of value in trying to work across some of these traditional boundaries, trying to work with other disciplines and trying to work across this doctrinal empirical divide. And I think in many ways you've already answered what was going to be my, my next question. But one thing we'll certainly do is put the link to that publication in the show notes so people can um, have a read uh, if they'd like to. But I, my, my next question is going to be about what you think is the value of empirical studies in social legal research. But of course, you've already mentioned a number of things, including Obviously, if we think of empirical studies in law as law in action, then, of course, that allows for engaging with stakeholders, be perhaps um, law enforcement, perhaps third sector organisations who are working, particularly with respect to the criminal law, because that has been our focus, I suppose, but working with offenders, working with victims, etc., public sector, industry, uh, etc. So working with stakeholders, working across disciplines, would you like to add anything else to, to that list of, of advantages? Well, I, I think in my, my previous answer, I emphasised how the empirical could feed into the doctrinal. I think it also can work in the other direction. So you could have doctrinal questions or doctrinal issues that you can then use to design research questions that can be answered empirically. And so you can use empirical work to test the doctrinal research and potentially to advance it. So what I think is a really good example of this is one of my favourite um, articles that we recommend on the, the criminal law module. It's a piece by Emily Finch and Vanessa Munro, which is about the notion of consent in the law of rape. And researching jury deliberations is something that is very difficult in this country because of the the prohibition 
on uh, recording what's said in the context of a, a jury room. So what Finch and Munro did was to set up a, a series of mock trials and they uh, then recorded the deliberations of these mock jurors and they analysed the discussions. And one of the key concepts that they examined very closely was the word capacity. So in the, in the law of rape, meaning of consent is defined in section 74 of the sexual offences act it's defined as a person consents if they agree by choice and they have the capacity and the freedom to make that choice so the doctrinal scholarship at the the time this act was passed warns that the word capacity there was potentially quite open quite vague was open to different possible interpretations and understandings and there were warnings that stereotypes about consent and rape myths could start to influence jury deliberations through this word capacity. And one of the really excellent things about Finch and Munro's article, which was published in the journal Legal Studies, it was that it, it proved these concerns that the doctrinal theorists had. They showed widely divergent views and understandings of what capacity to consent actually means and it was such a powerful article because it, it showed these divergent understandings really quite vividly um, and really reinforced the concerns that had been raised by theorists about the potential for um, damaging stereotypes to inform jury decision making. So I thought that was a brilliant piece of empirical work that had quite an imaginative design using the mock jury, the, the mock trial set up. But then what they did really well was to make sure that those empirical findings spoke to doctrinal issues and really helped advance the understanding of, of this offence. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, yeah. I'll make sure I, I add that uh, paper to the show notes as well. Yeah, and I suppose that, is transferable to many other areas of the law where um, given that uh, juries play a role in, in determining whether or not someone is guilty of an offence, you know, public perceptions of uh, legal concepts will equally be important in, in many other areas. So it, it's certainly something that uh, a, a method that is transferable to other areas. I don't know if Yvonne wanted to come in here because we were talking about her upcoming project in the first episode of our podcast and I believe you're planning to use mock trial mock jurors as well yeah right? and uh, Vanessa Monroe was actually on the advisory board for the project so it'll be amazing to have that experience sort of informing what we do but um, yeah it's so it's such an interesting method and I'm really looking forward to deploying that fab um well I I think we, we are coming to the end of this episode, but our last question for you, Stuart, was whether you have any top tips for those uh, starting out in social legal research, our students, anyone else who may be listening to this podcast? I think one of the things that I would really strongly um, recommend is thinking very carefully about your research design. And that's got a few components to it so firstly think very carefully about your research questions so it's really important that you, you have research questions that uh, will speak to important issues 
so maybe if you've done a literature review and you've identified gaps in existing knowledge, then you can ask questions that are designed to try and fill that gap in the knowledge base. And if you're able to speak to non-academics about the kinds of questions that they're facing in their work, then that will help ensure that you ask questions that will have some policy relevance or practical importance. So think very carefully about your research questions. And once you've got those identified, then think very carefully about the methods that you wish to use, because you need to ensure that your questions and your methods are lined up. So the type of methodology that you employ needs to be capable of answering the questions that you wish to ask. And then thirdly, think very carefully about issues around research ethics. Uh, so especially if you're looking at criminal justice topics like I do, there can be some quite acute ethical concerns uh, around the welfare of the researcher, but also the welfare of research participants, their anonymity. Um, so think very carefully about your research questions, your methods and ethical issues, and make sure that the three of those are all aligned so that uh, they all pull together and all pull in the same direction. And that will ensure that you have a, a nicely designed research project. Excellent, excellent tips. And I'm I'm very glad that they are resonating with some of the ground we've already covered in in our first couple of uh, sessions uh, on 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 the MA. <laughs> um, brilliant. Well, I think this is this is all from us. I think um, uh, thank you again, Stuart, for for joining us. And Thanks, Stuart. Hey, thank you for having me. It was great to have you. And this is this is it from us at the Methods Cafe. So once again, we hope you enjoy this episode. And if you can, follow our podcast so you don't miss the next episodes and leave us a review. So thank you very much and see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>